Even before the coronavirus, there has been discourse about good actors and bad actors in an economy, and if companies, when left for themselves, will make choices that benefit the population. Today, we talked to Shafali Kapadia, the executive editor of Supply Chain Dive, to dig into this question from a supply chain perspective and to see what companies are doing to remedy this crisis once and for all. Consumer awareness and caring about that has put the onus on companies to say, okay, from a brand and an image perspective, we need to make sure that our supply chain is very clean and in good condition. And that's been their motivation, I think, more so than government regulations. My name is Jenny Dodari. I'm Caroline Klowinowski. And this is The Utopian. So I want to start off by asking you, with the coronavirus, what are some of the biggest disruptions facing supply chain right now? There's certainly a lot happening. Um, One of the biggest disruptions has to do with supply. So a lot of the things that we get, whether they are finished goods or raw materials or something in between, uh, a good part of that production comes from China. And of course, when this all started in China, there was a huge stoppage in production and things just couldn't be made. And even goods that were being made weren't necessarily being shipped out of the country. So that's kind of where everything started was the businesses in the US and in Europe and all over the world that import, whether it's their raw materials or their finished products from China, just weren't able to get those items that they needed. And of course, now that this is spreading all over the globe and there's production impacts in other parts of the world um, and things are happening all over, it's just continuing to amplify that effect with supply where production can't be quite what it is. Um, And now you're facing sort of the other side of the coin, which is demand, where consumer demand for certain items, especially if you're, you know, you can't really go to a retail store right now. So demand is just down for a lot of those goods. Um, So it's kind of this balance of supply and demand and where do you find kind of the ideal point there. With factories closing globally, uh, what are supply chain problems uh, that the U.S. is facing? And how are we trying to solve them right now? So the main problem is just not being able to import what is needed to demand for U.S. businesses. Um, so since so much of that stuff comes from China, it's just been a struggle to get that. And now with it spreading, there's problems with even sometimes the alternative suppliers that a business might have. Um, so a couple of solutions that have been tried are um, what's known as diversifying the supply chain. And what that means is instead of having one or two suppliers and that are based all in kind of the same region to really spread that out. So instead of in the past, maybe a business had two to three suppliers in China and Vietnam. Now they might have five. They still have those ones in China and Vietnam, but they also have one in Malaysia, another one in India, perhaps one in Mexico, and have just kind of spread out their supply base so that they have more options baked in. Um, a topic of conversation that comes up sometimes is this idea of nearshoring. 
So bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. Um, and producing goods locally so that you don't have that long supply chain of having things in Asia and having to ship it over. Um, the slight issue with that, one is just from a cost perspective, the cost of labor in the United States is much higher than places in Southeast Asia or Mexico. So businesses don't always benefit from having a factory based in the U.S. just because their costs are so high. The other issue, of course, right now is that U.S. production is in many ways shut down or manufacturers are having their workers work fewer shifts or not coming in as often or production is shut down. Um, so it's it's kind of not exactly a solution in the short term. So we actually talked to a professor from Fashion Institute of Technology who specializes in international commerce and fair trade. And she said that what's happening with the coronavirus is going to kind of pull us away from this model of a fragmented supply chain, which is kind of what you were talking about. But she actually said that she believed production would go inward again, that not that we would go completely protectionist in terms of trade, but that at the very least, we'd care about fair trade more. We'd want to support and invest in local businesses more, especially U.S. companies in the U.S. What are your thoughts on that? And do you think that's the trajectory that we're headed in? I think it can be certainly for some industries. Um, so some might find that it just makes more sense and there's less risk to have your supplier right nearby. Um, I talked to a person who works for a company a couple days ago, and they found that by adding a supplier in Mexico, they had a shorter supply chain and they had shorter lead times. And so they by the initial thing was to diversify their supply chain. But then by adding this, they found these extra benefits of a little bit more control, not having to deal with the overseas shipping and all of that. Um, so I think it is a factor that a lot of companies might look at, and especially with the USMCA um, trade deal coming now, I think that will help to amplify a lot of the cross-border trade and a lot of this stuff with Mexico. Um, but I think for the vast majority of businesses, cost is still going to be top of mind. So even if there is still a 25% tariff on something you get from China, it might still be cheaper to import it and deal with that whole shipping chain and all of the cost factors in there. That entire equation often is still cheaper than moving everything and manufacturing in the U.S. And some of these industries, I think apparel, fashion, footwear is one that is just so deeply rooted now in Asia. Um, so even for those who've moved factories and direct suppliers to places like Malaysia or Bangladesh or Vietnam, those countries still get a lot of their material inputs from China. So even if a business isn't necessarily importing directly from China, they're still importing something that comes from an import from China. So there's still this chain and this connection uh, to China. And there's just such deep roots there that upending all of that and moving everything and nearshoring, while it might happen, it would definitely be several years out before anything like that became something that would happen. So considering how deeply rooted the supply chain is um, in being connected to China, how has coronavirus affected the supply chain long-term between the U.S. and China and the trade war. 
between between the two countries. I mean, it's kind of hard to say long term just because all of this is evolving so quickly. Um, the trade war definitely started a lot of those diversifying efforts. So when businesses saw that their costs were going up because import duties were 10% and then they were 25% and they were on billions of dollars of products, that sort of started this initiative of, okay, we need to um, right now it's there's not really a lot of other options the entire world and production everywhere is kind of shut down so actually right now sort of the best bet is to go where there is production which in this case kind of ironically is China um, because they're the only ones that are starting to ramp back up and get production back online um, so long term, it's just really hard to say because we don't know how long this will last and we don't know how severe it might be around the whole world. Um, but I think it has definitely made supply chains and, and people who work in the industry think really about risk and how they can just go forward with a strategy that looks at, OK, we need to have options in case something like this happens and so that we're not facing the same disruption that we did during this, we just can't afford to have this happen again. So what long-term plans are we going to put in place? So what is it about China that's kind of made it such an attractive place to usually begin production? And then I'm really interested by this idea of risk management that you are beginning to talk about. So if you could just elaborate on what are some risk management strategies that companies are talking about right now that you know of that you think would be especially effective? Sure. Um, so the China piece of it, I think it really became attractive initially, low cost labor solution. Um, so that meant not a lot of costs, very high up the chain. Um, and then the other thing was just development expanded so rapidly. So one, there is a very large population, of course, which makes it easy to establish a wide variety of industries and sort of build them up. Um, and so that really, through a combination of the population, as well as the Chinese government really pushing investment, it just sort of boomed across a lot of industries. And it um, even there were some, you know, manufacturing sites closer to like the US and Mexico that probably moved to China because it just had so many opportunities coming up there. Um, and the other piece of it is proximity. Um, it's near a lot of global hubs. Um, it's kind of, you know, central to a lot of Asian businesses. Um, there's so many ports of call that are huge. So I think just all of that has made China kind of the center of a lot of this manufacturing and, and very essential to all of that. And in terms of risk management, um, there's a lot of different strategies. Like we talked about diversifying suppliers is a huge one that people look at. Um, things like forecasting and demand planning are typically parts of risk management. So thinking long term of, okay, in six months, what's, what is this going to look like in terms of our demand? Um, how do we sort of balance what we're buying with what we're going to be selling? Um, that's very, very difficult to do in the current environment, just because it's the forecasts typically are based on, you would make a six month out forecast based on a model of the past six months. Well, obviously things are very shifting and very dynamic. So it would be difficult to do something like that. Um, but in general, a risk management strategy does often focus around balancing the idea of 
how much is our demand going to be? What's our sales output going to be? And how do we adjust uh, what we're buying and our inventory to match that so that we end up with, you know, for a retail store, not having to mark down products or put everything on sale? Um, you said that the U.S. is now turning to China um, for its supply chain because uh, they've recovered from coronavirus rather um well, better than some of the other countries right now. But isn't that counterintuitive to President Trump's uh, trade war? Why not de-escalate it now, considering the, the economic circumstances that we are in, instead of right now, he, you know, they're just keeping it as it is and maintaining the status quo with, with the trade war? Yeah, and there have been a lot of businesses that have, um, I think a big coalition of, of various associations and various industries wrote a letter to the Trump administration asking, while we're dealing with this entire pandemic and the economic impact is huge, you know, can we put off the tariffs? Can we stop this trade war? Um, and the answer from the administration was essentially no so far. Um, so why that is, I don't know. I'm not a political expert. Um, but as far as how importers are concerned, they're having to deal with the situation where um, kind of China is, in some cases, maybe their only option for importing stuff. Um, and therefore, they have no choice really, but to still pay the tariffs. Um, and this is especially true for healthcare related supply chains. Um, so a lot of pharmaceuticals are manufactured in China, or at least the active ingredients for them stem from China. And same for a number of medical supplies and devices and things like masks and gloves and all the supplies that we need over here. Um, so a couple of them have had waivers and exemptions temporarily for tariffs on some of those products. Um, still, it doesn't cover everything. And, you know, kind of compounding that is there's just not enough supply. And the, the countries that do have all of those items, they are first prioritizing what their own cities and states and everything need before they're going to export. So it's only really exports of excess goods, which very, very few people have at this point in time. Hi everyone, it's Dalvin here, the ombudsman at the Stony Brook Press and the co-producer of the Utopian podcast with Jenny and Caroline. If you could just do us one huge favor and that's to rate our podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast app you're listening to, that would really help us out. Whenever you leave a high rating or a good review, it helps our show move up on the iTunes charts and makes it more discoverable to like-minded people like you. And also, don't forget to share the show or your favorite episodes on social media. And if you do, don't forget to tag us on Twitter. We're at Utopian Podcast or also on Facebook as well at The Utopian. And we'll make a point of reposting and retweeting whenever you guys share us out. Thanks, guys. Now, on to the show. So, I mean, every day the Trump administration is kind of talking about how we're distributing ventilators, we're giving masks to hospitals. When we talk about what's actually being done, 
are we kind of diversifying our import portfolio or are we turning production inward to meet this increased demand for all of these medical equipment? I think in the very short term, it's the latter. Um, so you see a lot of auto are talking about, okay, so we're not producing cars right now, we're not producing trucks, but instead we're going to retool our production lines and make ventilators and make all of these other goods that are needed. And same with some retailers, since they're not needing uh, retail brands or apparel brands, since they're not needing to make as many supplies of things like clothing and footwear. They're thinking, okay, how can we use this material we have to make something like a mask or a gown or any other supply, um, you know, fabric related that might be needed. So I think that's sort of a very, very short term solution that a lot of companies are looking at. The challenge is, how do you do that? So even if you have, you know, you've got the whole factory set up, but the factory is designed to make cars. So then to realign all of that, you might have some of the supplies, but you don't necessarily have everything needed to make a ventilator. Um, You've got to rearrange whatever automated thing that typically puts a hood on a car is going to be very different from how you put together a ventilator. And same with just the knowledge and the R&D aspect of it is, do you have a blueprint for how you create a ventilator? And this isn't, you know, retraining staff on, they were trained to know how to make a car and know how to operate this machinery in a way that creates an automobile versus creating a ventilator. Um, So I think everybody realizes how dire this situation is. Um, The practicality behind it, of course, to reconfigure your whole operation and make something different is very challenging. But I think just how serious the situation is has made a lot of businesses kind of go forward and do what they can to make that happen. And it also takes a lot of money to retrain staff and reconfigure factories to build ventilators or other equipment um, that companies probably don't have. So are there any successful companies that have realigned their businesses or, you know, anyone that's, you know, doing a good job so far of like going from shoes to ventilators or masks and gowns or cars to other healthcare equipment? As far as I know, it's kind of too early to say right now. Um, GM is one of the companies that has been working on that. Um, As far as output, I don't know if they have any sort of data or how much they've really achieved so far. So it's certainly a conversation, but in terms of actually materially affecting the supply that we have, I think just because these efforts are so early we don't necessarily have that data or not to know for sure whether it's impacted at the supply. It seems that companies are coming together to solve a lot of these problems. Do you think that's a testament to the fact that free markets can be trusted to solve collective action problems? Or do we need to reconfigure our economy and the fragmented supply chain to do better? I mean, I think companies have certainly kind of taken their own initiative, um, whether for the greater good or the publicity, I hope it's the former, Um, but just to take this into their own hands and realize that this is a crisis that needs to be dealt with. Um, At the same time, I think that a lot of state healthcare systems are, we're really hoping for more government intervention. Um, So I know a couple of healthcare systems, um, especially at the state level, we're talking about, we just don't have the supplies because those are at the federal level. 
and we have to put in a request and then it trickles down from the federal level to the state level um, and created a really challenging situation for a healthcare system that is just trying to distribute things like surgical masks to all of their workers to make sure that they are kept safe. Um, so I think companies certainly take that initiative and that is something that, you know, if there is information sharing between the companies that can really help to make production of all of these things faster and really accelerate. But there's certainly a helpful impetus behind the government coming in and either saying like, hey, we'll, you know, help with this kind of funding to make this happen, or we'll accelerate this, or we'll provide this kind of support, or we will organize around this. And kind of this idea of a public-private partnership where the companies are working together, but so is the government and everyone is sort of on the same page. And I think especially from the healthcare perspective, not as many companies have felt that the government has taken the kind of action that they need to get the supplies uh, that they're asking for. How has the uh, stimulus package helped uh, with the supply chain problem? As far as I know, most of the stimulus package related to um, supply chain related things was kind of about studying like how we can research this and how we can look at risk for the future. Um, so there was a little bit in there about air cargo and the carriers there and just making sure that businesses that do need to use air freight to transport supplies in any way uh, were kind of able to get that capacity even as all of these airlines are stopping a lot of passenger flights. But I think a lot of the stimulus bill has to do more with long-term risk planning like we were talking about. So looking at just how do supply chains kind of retool themselves to avoid disruption and how do we look at risk and how are we going to study that in the future? So materially, I don't know if there's a whole lot short-term that'll really help supply chain specifically. Um, I think small businesses that are part of the supply chain that might be suffering a little bit should hopefully benefit from that economic stimulus and, and getting some money to kind of weather this storm. What do you think is the future from the public policy side for supply chain? Right now, countries are left to delegate only what happens in their borders, while corporations can participate in this large-scale transnational behavior. Does the government have a role in transnational governance in making supply chain more fair? I think there could be some of that at the government level, but I think that's also something that companies on their own are just very aware of. Um, so there's a huge risk to a company having any sort of, for example, forced labor in their supply chain. Um, and if you see a lot of companies are getting a lot more transparent about, uh, you know, if we take something like coffee, like, hey, this coffee came from a fair trade sustainable coffee plant in and then there's a description of the farm and the people who work on the farm and all of that. So that whole chain is getting really a lot more transparent. Um, and it's something that consumers are just starting to care more about is did this product have any sort of ethical concerns? Did it have labor issues? Did it have sustainable practices or not? So I think that consumer awareness and caring about that has put the onus on companies to say, okay, from a brand and an image perspective, we need to make sure that our supply chain is very clean and in good condition. And that's been their motivation, I think, more so than government regulations um, to make sure that 
they don't have any sort of forced labor or issues upstream in the supply chain. I think there is always an aspect to, you know, having laws about where you can import from and if there are, you know, significant issues in a country. Um, but I don't know necessarily that businesses need that push because they are certainly other motivating factors for them to make sure that they don't have anything like that in their supply chain or it'll negatively impact and reflect on the brand and therefore sales. I mean, it kind of seems like that's not happening. We still have kids mining for coltan in the Congo. We still have the fast fashion industry and large-scale environmental degradation. So can we really trust consumers and companies alone? Because what you're saying certainly sounds a little optimistic. But please, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, it probably is a little bit optimistic. Um, I think, and maybe not universal unilaterally that it's necessarily happening but I do think you do see some brands um you know Patagonia is one that I would name that is very very brand conscious and very they're doing upstream and there's a lot more um advocacy organizations that are paying attention to the supply chain so Greenpeace has been looking a lot at things like deforestation and um palm oil and I think that for like, you know, for the most part, consumers are definitely starting to care more, they might not all care, or it might not be every aspect of it. So like the minerals you mentioned in the Congo, that might not be a concern yet. But it but I think consumers are starting to care more about did this product, um, you know, come from a fair trade farm? And is a farmer earning a fair wage? Um, so it may not be widespread yet, but I do think that's where we're heading. And if a brand wants to be successful, it has to get ahead of that trend. So it can't in five years when the vast majority of shoppers and consumers are really aware of what's happening upstream in the supply chain and caring about things like sustainability and labor and, and ethical concerns if a brand decides then, oh, like we need to fix everything and make sure that we're appealing to consumers, then they've fallen behind. And even now, if they're not thinking about that and not baking in that kind of risk management and mitigation into their strategy, they're behind a ton of other brands that are already thinking about things like that. So as as companies are trying to diversify their supply chain to stay afloat um, in this pandemic. Do you think after everyone's recovered, um, at least physically, companies will try to keep their portfolios uh, diverse to bounce back or um, prevent uh, an economic, you know, uh, punch like that to happen again to them? Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't think it's going to be, hey, let's diversify and then let's rein it all back in. I think this is a the trade war as well as the coronavirus sort of initiated this need to diversify. Um, for some companies, it was even before that, but these kind of really pushed it into like, hey, we need to think about this. This is really important. But I think it's one of those things that's going to become a part of long-term strategy. So realizing that for future risks, which inevitably there will be something um, it's just necessary to have this diverse base of suppliers and knowing that you have options when if there is a shutdown in one country, you can go to another one 
or if there is a problem with one, it could just be even more localized. If there's just a problem at this one manufacturing plant that you have two other options that you can go to and not have to stop production or not have to basically pause your entire supply chain and deal with, you know, out of stock or anything like that, um, just because you were so reliant on one source of information. So I think it's a, it's a general kind of best practice for supply chain. This, these events have sort of made it happen. Um, but I think it'll just kind of continue in the future and be a part of risk strategy. Okay, um, it's 1.30, so really, really quickly, um, what do you think people like me and Caroline can do to become more ethical consumers? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> um, just thinking about what, like, what really matters to you. Um, so if, for example, you really want to make sure that the food that you're eating doesn't have any sort of relation to deforestation. Um, so thinking of a really specific issue and then researching it and thinking and realizing what brands are connected to this or what companies have, you know, gone through the Rainforest Alliance and made sure that their supply chains are very sustainable versus which ones have not. Um, and then making sure that follow through on something like that, it's really easy at the consumer level to look at the product that's fair trade and the price of the product next to it that's not fair trade and be very tempted to buy the cheaper one. That's a totally natural consumer habit. Um, but to really want to enforce that, it has to come from like a broad push at the consumer level that the consumer is saying, this is not okay for a brand to do. And therefore like, we're going to this alternative uh, until you step up your game. <laughs>